Hi, this is Seaburn Fisher. I'm the author of Neurofeedback and the Treatment of Developmental Trauma, Calming the Fear-Driven Brain. And you're listening to Neuro Noodle Network Podcast. Thank you all for joining Neuro Noodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast featuring our neuropsychologist, Dr. Laura Janssens, Dr. Skip Wren, and neurofeedback legend, Jay Gunkelman. This is an all-star cast that are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. You can find DrLauraJansons.com. Dr. Skip can be found at DrSkipRin.com. And Jay Gunkelman, well, there's only one Jay Gunkelman on Google. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word out. If they can't hear us, we can't help them. My name is Pete, and today we're going to chat with, once again, our friend Seaburn Fisher, author of Neurofeedback and the Treatment of Developmental Trauma, Calming the Fear-Driven Brain. This is a must-read, whether you're a practitioner or a client of Neurofeedback Services. Okay, let's chat with Seaburn Fisher. Seaburn, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Oh, we just loved uh, your book, and I think I bought another. We had a new tech come in, and I had to buy another one of those. So hopefully that that extra nickel that you got from me uh, goes to good goes big, to good use big money big money in books. <laughs> hey can i can i start real quick last week i had a patient call out of the blue um and said very specifically will you do that kind of neurofeedback that is documented in dr seaburn's book i said okay i'll try <laughs> this is that this is a lovely and also a problem because uh you know i say very specifically you can't follow these protocols you have to work with your clinician to figure out how your brain needs to train but <clears throat> nonetheless um people people do that i mean it's it's flattering but it's not accurate <laughs> you know, right. uh although you know i do do neurofeedback in a particular way and it comes out of being a psychotherapist first and dealing with the issues of arousal. So that's the way I follow the brain and I feel like I'm in a conversation with the brain in terms of what it what is telling me about uh, its own or the central nervous system and its own level of of arousal and whether we're calming things. So it's an efficacious way to do it. It's not the only way. Dr. Fisher, could you, for the new listeners that weren't on, you know, three months ago, the first time, can you give a quick background uh, on yourself uh, to clue everybody in? A quick background. Well, I'm a, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm a psychotherapist uh, by early training, worked with now kids that we would consider have developmental trauma at that point. They were either PTSD or ADHD or any number, but bipolar, any number of uh, diagnoses, which just meant they were disturbed. And that really what it comes down to is when we, well, okay, background. So I was clinical director of that, of a residential treatment facility for these kids and most of whom didn't get better. And most of whom uh, stayed in the system, are still in the system now, 50 or 55. In fact, I'm consulting on one of these people right now, who I, she's not my patient in care, but she uh, was at that treatment center. So I learned about neurofeedback in, uh, after training my own brain, this was a stunning experience. I write about it in the book. In um, 1996, and I went and trained with the Othmers and um, began doing neurofeedback in earnest with my own uh, traumatized population in 1997. 
I mean, in 19, yeah, 1992, and then in 19, wait, wait, wait 1997. And then in, uh, Norton asked me to write a book, uh, 2012, and I published a book on this experience of working with trauma and with neurofeedback and integrating it with psychotherapy, because I think that's essential with this population. So that's my, that's my thumbnail. It's Mental Health Awareness Month, and my two cents, and I'm going to step back and let the talent uh, do their thing, just to the moms and dads, because we reach out to moms and dads, parents, end users, practitioners, docs, everybody's listening to the show. To the parents out there, what advice would you give them for Mental Health Awareness Month? What advice could you give for themselves and their kids? Is it as simple as get a QEEG, talk with somebody, get a mental checkup? I'll hang up and I'll listen for my answer. Thank you. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't off the top recommend a QEEG for, for a number of reasons, but, but in, it's, it's really a good question. And it's uh, one that the schools, the, the parents are facing, the schools facing, schools are facing too, is what have these kids really endured? What's happened to their um, sense of themselves and their being okay and their ability to make friends. And, you know, I think particularly of teenagers and young teenagers, this is the time they're supposed to be separating from their families and they've been held into their families. So I think it's just to keep an eye out on how they're doing, you know, in Massachusetts, right? In Western Massachusetts right now, if a child goes to an emergency room for psychiatric uh, concern, they are typically in the emergency room for four, oh, 40 days because there's no place for them to go. Uh, acute care is hardly available. Waiting lists are long. And so I think it is just to be aware and be as validating as you can of this experience that these kids have been through. Um, do all of the things that are available, breathing, exercise, all of the, the things that are, are easily available. And if you're very concerned about your child to at least get on a wait list um, or find somebody to help them. And I always think it's better to do neurofeedback. I work with severely traumatized people, but um, I don't think you should have to be severely traumatized to benefit from training your brain. For the schools... You, you mentioned on the last show that because of, of COVID that the schools are going to be understaffed to help uh, special needs kids. Could you touch on that? And I will really hang up and listen for my answer. Thank you. Well, there are going to be more kids with special needs. And the special needs kids are often emotionally disturbed kids. That's, you know, that's really what special needs is. In most cases, there are other, other kids, obviously, with uh, disabilities, but they typically is a it's a brain problem. The schools are already understaffed to, to take care of this. And my uh, goal in, uh, well, no, this is a very lofty goal for a very short period of time, but um, my goal yeah. is to see that where, where, what I would do if I could magically do something would have neurofeed, trained neurofeedback people in every school, right? And, and I would have a brain curriculum and I would have a self-regulation curriculum. Well, within the self-regulation curriculum, I'd have a brain, you know, so kids really understood their brains. You know, by third grade, they were beginning to get uh, the reality of their brains and that they knew that there was a peak performance tool that was there in the school. So they wanted to get better at basketball or get out of special ed, they could do that 
right there in the school. You know, it's a lofty goal, but it's interesting because um, I, you know, I work closely with Bessel van der Kolk, and he, this is what he wants too, is to pilot a self-regulation curriculum in the school of the, of the county that we uh, share, Berkshire uh, County in, um, in Massachusetts. It's beginning at with neurofeedback being introduced into the wellness center of Berkshire Medical Center. And that's begun. And so it, there is movement. And when you get somebody with a voice like Bessel's in, in, into the field of neurofeedback, something moves. And that's what's happening. So. Uh, Jay and Seaburn, you guys had questions going back and forth. Take a couple of swings at the plate there and then skip. Before, before that, I'd, I'd like to toss in one thing about the mental health uh, month or week or day or whatever they're giving us. Yeah. Parents who have kids that are in sports, I think that's the one group that does have a, a baseline EEG recording. Uh, as something that would come in very handy to identify changes in brain function due to any significant head injury. Head injuries are going to happen, and there's, there's no way around it. They happen to people that aren't even in sports. But if your kid's enrolled in football or basketball or soccer or hockey, whatever the sport is, if you don't have a baseline EEG recording, you really can't document the subtle changes that happen with head injuries. And a simple concussion on top of a simple concussion is not a simple concussion. They go up exponentially in how severe the brain injury is. And unless you end up having some baseline, it's hard to end up showing people you know, that there's actually a change that needs to have therapy. Schools need to end up pushing that as well. Uh, because how do they know when a, an athlete's ready to go back on the field unless they actually can see that somebody's returned to their to their baseline function, at least. Anyway, an, enough QEG promotion. <laughs> I had a quick comment before you ask Seaburn uh, your, your questions, Jay, if you don't mind. And that's, it, it's on this mental health awareness. I'm watching a show called City on the Hill, and it takes place in Boston, speaking of Massachusetts, in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And the, the most recent episode uh, was, you know, mental health issues within a family. There's a daughter that's having night terrors. And the mom is adamantly against therapy. You talk to the family, you don't talk to outsiders kind of thing. And the dad's like, hey, you know, my kid needs to talk to somebody. And I think it might be beyond, you know, our our listeners, if people are queuing into this show, they're probably open to the idea of seeking professional advice, right? Um, But it also kind of coincides with a couple interactions I had with with client patients this this week uh, and that they appreciated the objective hopefully, right, air quotes, objective uh, perspective of seeking out a professional as opposed to family members, friends, which obviously are invaluable uh, and, and, you know, so, so the seeds of our connections and things like that. But I think what we can offer, what mental health professionals can offer is, is an objective perspective on what's going on, right? I don't, I don't need to be somebody's mom, dad, best friend. I can still make a authentic therapeutic connection so that they feel okay. And they're not, you know, weirded out by talking to some stranger, but that you can, again, offer, offer, or, or work with them in a way that from your perspective just allows for maybe a more, as I've said a few times, objective 
perspective and direction and, and just how to manage whatever's going on, right? We, we don't have to be emotionally tied or connected with who we're working with to do our job. We don't have to be a cold fish either. Somewhere in the middle is nice, I think. Um, but anyway, that was my two cents is that, you know, the, the work that we're talking about and that's out there is valuable in its own right and that it's not a family member. It's not a friend and, you know, we, we can do what we do when folks seek us out. But that was that was it. That's until next May. I'll hold my tongue on that probably. But unless you have something, Laura, on on the month, um, I'd be interested in hearing Seaburn's answers to the questions you had, Jay. Just real quick, um, I had a just more of a personal experience. Um, I went to a music store yesterday and I ran into basically an old friend. He, he works there, and he said, "Oh my God, I'm so happy to see you." we're not great friends. We're, you know, you know, acquaintances, I guess we see each other now and then, but he's like, I just don't see anybody anymore. And he was so kind of just emotional to have a connection with, with an old uh, friend. And so, you know, you talk about mental health awareness and we're in the middle of COVID and, you know, you, you have experiences like that. People are starving, you know, for their old, you know, life, starving for companionship again, you know, you're isolated. And, you know, is it necessarily uh, hardcore counseling, you know, psychological intervention, psychiatry, neurofeedback? Probably, you know, that, that's, that's certainly uh, going on. But there's this huge kind of social need that people are having. That's the question, like, what do you do with that? You know, if you're supposed to be isolating and, you know, hopefully we're coming out of this, you know, what, what can be made available socially for people to kind of get back into life? And, you know, I guess it's just an open question or a comment that, uh, you know, people seem to just really be starving right now for, for touch. Yeah, there's good news in that, right? Is that it's all pro-social. Mm-hmm. People realize they need each other. They need uh, people beyond the family unit, that uh, that kids need school. This may be the first generation of kids that isn't complaining about going to school. You know, so there's embedded in that the hope of, the, of humanity. And we've been through a very antisocial uh, epic in this country and around the world. And the value of coming together, if that is really recognized, and we don't know, we just don't know what all of this is going to end up meaning in terms of our collective mental health or individual mental health. It's going to be very hard to, to know. We can't know until we're out of it and looking back, right? Mm-hmm. What, but what's implicit in that, Laura, would you agree, is really very good news, is that people really get to understand that we are necessary to each other. Mm-hmm. We don't thrive alone and we can't be organized against or in it for ourselves or what, whatever the kind of antisocial organization can be. It's just, we need each other. We are social animals. We are created that way. And, um, and we don't always know that uh, when we are living our quote normal lives and it could be, a gift of this pandemic for people to understand that. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Positive outcome. I, I think that's absolutely right. I think that's where, you know, we're not going anywhere. We're not going to all become uh, autistic creatures. And I don't mean that in the clinical sense, but, you know, we have our gadgets and we have our, uh, you know, computers as we're all talking on them now, but um, yeah, I, I think there, yeah, there's a message in all of that, that uh, we're designed to be connected. Yeah. And diversity often leads to bonding. So let's just see. Mm-hmm. Let's just see how we how we do with this, right? I mean, 
but it's yeah. I thought your anecdote was uh, is really the good news wrapped in the sad news. Seabird mm-hmm. uh, and I both started out in in institutions that had awful names. Uh, mine was North Dakota State Hospital for the Insane. Which is a little bit of a pejorative, you know. Um, And Seaburn had the uh, Institution for Severely Disturbed Adolescents, which if you want an adolescent to act severely disturbed, call them a severely disturbed adolescent. They'll live up to the reputation. We both kind of transcended that uh, bad institutional title and, and came out of that with some interesting skills. You had 17 years from 1980 to 97. And during that time, there was work in the area of attachment uh, that was by Alan Shore. And I've always been curious as to how much you picked up off of his work and embedded into your model. Um, Well, Alan Shore came toward the end of that time. I think he first published in 92. The whole it, it became clear to me through a series of workshops and also just the, the reality of on the ground of how these kids were doing that, that it wasn't always trauma. Uh, you know, it wasn't always a history of being abused that had these kids show up. And the most uh, troubled boy that I worked with was a boy whose mother had a postpartum depression that went on for seven years. She loved her son. There was no significant abuse in the picture at all, but there was a completely absent mother. She was uh, not helped sufficiently and no one came in to help her with her child. And this boy was um, at the edge of sociopathy. Uh, I told him at one point that he had to buy sheets, that they had to have sheets for his bed and he went out and bought black sheets. I didn't know you could find black sheets. I didn't know that they existed. So you get an idea of the tenor of this boy. And at one point in a case note, this is before I knew anything about much, actually. I said, if we want to reach this boy, we're going to have to create him. That's how absent he felt in in his being. And this was an attachment crisis. It wasn't uh, abuse. And we're just starting to get people to think about trauma at that point. So then to introduce this other thing, which was called attachment, and I remember when I'm talking about, you know, this with one of the one of our funder people from the Department of Social Services, he said he said exactly this. He said, if uh, there is no such thing as attachment disorder, because if there because I didn't learn about it in graduate school and if I didn't learn it about it in graduate school, it doesn't exist. And, and that even though that's stereotypic, that's exactly the attitude we come up against all the time. Right, Jay? I mean, that's really what we come up against all the time. But so then what we started to look at really anecdotally was who, which, which of the kids were having the harder, where were we having the hardest time? And this kid was not someone who acted out a lot, but he was absolutely not movable. And, you know, he was a real disaster in the attachment scale. And I started looking around for where this was being talked about. And, and so we adopted at some point a, uh, a focus on attachment, regardless of this uh, uh, DSS supervisor. You could start to predict a kid doing better in therapy. Obviously, it makes perfect sense, right? They have a, have a capacity for relationship of doing better, even if there was a lot of trauma, if there had been an attachment history. 
Alan Shore, you know, he was building on Bowlby. And in fact, I talked to him once about his work. And he was originally going to write a book that was an homage to Freud. He was going to prove that the brain supported Freud's theory. And he got sent over by some editors, actually, who were looking at his manuscript, into the attachment literature. And that's how Alan Shore became Alan Shore, who really revived attachment as a focus in the field of psychotherapy. And now, you know, the, 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 the diagnosis, the rejected diagnosis from DSM, I remember the DSM committee, of developmental trauma is probably the most accepted, uh, you know, by clinicians to describe disaster of, uh, on the, of the impact on the brain of early developmental trauma. But the focus of that is on attachment rupture, at least in the United States or at least in certain cultures. This is the thing, right? This is uh, absolutely necessary. And, and as therapists that we, that we learn um, and we take, in, I, I, for, in my webinars, I'll talk about how people can, should use whatever therapy they're most um, comfortable with, but uh, it has to have an attachment focus. So, you know, Alan, uh, Dan Siegel, a number of people who have followed I've done some very important work. Ruth Lanius was supporting, you know, Ruth Lanius has now become the leading neuroscience researcher in, in neurofeedback and trauma. Her work is very important and she was really introduced into the scene through Alan Shore. He's all through her, his first book, you know, and, and when Bessel started talking about neurofeedback, most of his colleagues did the same to him as what happens to Jay and me is I you sort of distance him and said, oh, we could do what that, that is in regular psychotherapy. And he said, well, bless you, I can't. And so I need to uh, help people with their brains. And he, uh, one of the people who didn't turn away, who said, oh, that's it. That is a key, was Ruth Lanius. And now Ruth has become the leading researcher in the field of developmental trauma, fMRI research, and neurofeedback. And it's stunning what she's coming up with. Yes, that's a long answer, Jay. Well, we do stand on shoulders of giants. And as your award from ISNR uh, stated, we stand on shoulders of giants like you as well. I, I thought Alan Shore's, one of his real keys was the face-to-face -face interaction, parent-to-child, developing neurotransmitters the neural networks that are uh, the, the underpinnings of our psychiatric presentation later in life. Mm -hmm. and, and this includes uh, kappa opioids, endogenous kappa opioids, which end up being associated with dissociation. Mm -hmm. Your more recent work focuses on the aspect of dissociation. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about that. Not so much the chemistry of it, but, uh, but the... Uh, you know, as I was saying earlier, I don't know if it was on the tape or not, but we're talking about different models, right? And the arousal model. And the uh, arousal is embedded in, in this, uh, you know, the more fear-driven the brain, just to go back to a mnemonic here, the more fear-driven the brain, the more likelihood that it is for the brain to move right through fight and flight 
it will all, as the stimulus will happen, then there'll be fight and flight is, every brain goes through that level of arousal. But if you're young and you can't escape, it goes through that very fast. So it doesn't, the brain's arousal doesn't stay in the fight and flight where the muscle tone goes up and the heart rate goes up and the, you know, it's just the opposite. It goes right in the parasympathetic, um, an overdrive of the parasympathetic system and your muscles can't move. You are essentially in a, um, what I think of increasing is called dissociation. What I think of that as increasingly, just looking at, just meditating on this literature, is I think of that as death feigning in the in the human brain. That the and what what consciousness is available to people when they're in a death feigning mode, uh, because you can't escape uh, the, your predator if you're a baby, you just can't. And when when I'm working with developmental trauma, I'm working with people who've had these attachment ruptures and usually that opens the door for predation. So then there's a predator that comes in. One of the trauma literati people said the person to be most worried about is the mother's boyfriend, right? In terms of uh, when there's trauma, um, that's, that's, that's not to condemn all boyfriends of all mothers. It's just to say, be, be aware. So, and because statistically that's the risk. Anyway, what, we're, what, what happens then is with neurofeedback is that I think we are always trying to quiet, you know, from my perspective, right? We're trying to, and there's a hundred, probably a hundred thousand perspectives on this quantum that is between our ears, right? We have a quantum universe, each one of us under our skulls. So there's going to be a lot of salient ways to approach this, um, but from my, from my view, Jay, and talking about this in terms of arousal, we, the dissociation is the highest possible arousal. And you're trying to back the nervous system back out into uh, the capacity even for fight flight, which is a grown-up capacity, right? So adults that are still going into dissociation have not learned that they are now grown up, that they have muscle uh, capacity, that they can fight and flee or flee. And in fact, with a number of my adult patients, that is a signature moment where they are no longer passive in response to assault, or they imagine themselves differently when they get afraid uh, that they could fight back. And that is, we can, we are watching the arousal system and we're watching in a lot of ways, come get calmer, even though that it's not a place we want them to stay is in the fight or flight position either. Just want them to be able to be, find a baseline of comfort and some peace. Your insight into the frontal amygdala uh, network allowed you to use frontal neurofeedback to try to uh, dampen the amygdala. You know, if you go onto the literature, there's so much confusion about right and left amygdala. I, I wanted and, to ask you about this, yes. And, and, and emotion. It's, it's, it's really embarrassing. You know, the neuroscience of, of amygdala really is full of, like neurofeedback, small studies. Uh, they, they do functional MRI, um, but the, the end of the study might be five or seven people. I mean, functional MRI is expensive and 
Um, you get a handful of control people. None of the groups are large enough to really do group statistics on even, but you know, they, they end up reporting the results. There's a, a meta-analysis. I can't even remember the author's name off the top of my head from 2014 uh, that, that looked at um, the, uh, the, the right versus left amygdala and their conclusion based on lots of little tiny crappy studies was that it was almost always the left amygdala. And I'm thinking, what did they look at? Depression. Well, <laughs> you know, if that's the only emotion that you're going to be studying, you have a pretty good chance of finding the left side amygdala. Uh, Alan Shore's initial work uh, showed that primary emotion is, is, you know, right frontal, right amygdala, but social emotion, uh, emotions you have to learn, not, not ones were built in with like fear and anger and, 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 you know, some of the intense primal emotion, but learned emotion, shame and guilt um, are left hemispheric uh, learned later, not really early, but they're learned later. Uh, you, you have to actually have, you know, uh, uh, interaction to learn it. So shame and guilt end up being left-sided. And the, the, the two amygdala are both emotional processors. Uh, they, they give you a valence as this uh, positive or negative emotion and an intensity. How strong is the emotion? Those are the two primary things the amygdala gives the rest of the nervous system. And obviously, other areas have to network with the amygdala to end up interpreting all of this. Uh, the hippocampus as to what is it that I'm fearing or uh, being shamed by or whatever, and, and uh, the, the frontal lobe's regulation over that is the entire network. But uh, the, the, the left versus right amygdala uh, a quandary I think still sits there for researchers to hammer out because again, they've done small studies, poorly uh, uh, controlled really. And uh, the, their conclusions are, I think a little uh, faulty that uh, almost all emotion is left. And I, uh, you know- I would say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Say. yeah, last I knew the right hemisphere had a lot to say <laughs> about uh, uh, emotion and trauma. Um, one of the markers we see very commonly in PTSD is the right posterior temporoparietal junction, uh, P P4 and P8 or T6 is the old name for it. And, and that location ends up having a gigantic alpha peak for adults who've had trauma. But we also see slow content in kids that have had had trauma. And very early life experiences are encoded in slower frequencies that we were in at that time. So we, we actually, in, in my experience, and this is not, I can't point to the study because uh, there is no study. But in, in my experience, the, the very, very young kids that have, have trauma end up having a slow focus in the social perceptual areas. And if you're an adult and you went to a, a war theater which is not a movie theater showing a war movie, but you actually get into, into the real thing. Those traumas end up being encoded in adult frequencies of, of the alpha band. And I, I think that that's a dynamic that's not really written about. I don't even know that it's spoken about that much. I'd like to know a little 
bit about your perspective on that, if you have any comments. Well, I work with, first of all, it's hard to know exactly who, particularly in our modern age, who selects to go into the army, right? Is it people who are having fabulous family lives? Or they're already, why are you trying to leave the comfort of your home to go to Afghanistan? So we have to just ask that question, right? And there's a lot of speculation about that the army is pre-selecting for early childhood trauma without being necessarily aware of that. You know, so people who are having a lot of trouble. There's a PBS documentary, it was fabulous. It was called uh, Carrier. It's called Carrier. And it was profiles of the different uh, service people on this carrier. And all of them had these just dismal childhood stories, right? I mean, and they were all there as a treatment program, really, when you get right down to it. It's an incredible, it's a wonderful thing to watch. But, uh, and sad at the same time. So, uh, you know, how susceptible people are to adult trauma as a result of early childhood trauma, an unanswered question, but it's out there to be answered. So how, dis how discernible it is is part of it. And in an earlier interchange we had, Jay, you had asked about whether I saw particular frequencies depending on the age of the trauma. And that I don't have anything discreet like that, right? Because people are just living in the, are living through uh, in my population, poverty, uh, food insecurity, mental illness, alcoholism, drug addiction, all of those things are the surround and the individual trauma is just another thing, which happened multiple times, over usually over multiple ages. So I, I don't uh, see anything. What I do see is, well, a couple of things on this is one, as I see excess right hemisphere, particularly temporal lobe, uh, excess theta and delta. And I'd love to have you talk about that. But I also, in as you're talking about that, I also want to introduce with Lanius's protocol, where the first RCT, randomized control trial on neurofeedback and trauma, was published uh, with Lanius at the end of last year. And it is with a protocol, uh, she's just calling alpha protocol, but it's alpha down. And it's alpha down independent of whether the person has high to high alpha at PZ or to low alpha at PZ. And by bringing the alpha down, what she thinks she's doing is challenging the default mode network. And what she sees is that coming online. And that's published, right? And that's with neurofeedback. Even in a single study, in a single uh, session, not a single study, in a single session, with all, all people who were considered, were given diagnosis so they could give diagnosis of, of developmental trauma or like dissociative disorders in their case. A hundred percent of them showed a, uh, a connectivity between the PAG, the periaqueductal brain, in the, high up in the brainstem, but a brainstem or reptilian structure and the superior colliculus to the amygdala. So the amygdala is the second player. The first player is the threat detector in the, uh, in the brainstem. And that's what sets off the amygdala. And she would see this hyperconnectivity between in 100% of these people who were recruited for the study. 
so after the fMRI was taken, she did alpha down protocol for, for everyone. 80% of them showed a that that hyperconnectivity was gone and the connectivity between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala had begun to go online, 80%. That should have been front page news. That should have been in the Science Times. Nobody has ever seen anything like that. And that's in some, you know, whatever obscure trauma journal it's in, or it's probably not so obscure. She's, she gets into very good journals. But nonetheless, it's obscure being in a journal. Um, so um, uh, that's astounding. And no one believes that that would continue without practice. But the issue for us, Jay, for, is, uh, is for, for uh, your thoughts on why that might be true. Uh, what she sees, just to also let you know, is what she sees when it's successful is a rebound in alpha or a moving toward, quote, normal alpha, right? Yep. So if it's too high, it gets lower. If it's too low, it gets higher by very differently from the challenge of training it up, which we know in the field has been very difficult to do, to train, to get alpha established uh, at either a uh, higher frequency or higher amplitude. Yeah. And so your thoughts on both of those, the theta, delta sure. stuff and the alpha. Sure. That's not the only person that's identified the suppression of alpha posteriorly leading to a rebound following the training. And I think really what we're doing is training people to have some control over the alpha as opposed to not having any control. And if you learn to suppress, it's a control. If you learn to enhance, it's a control. But if you're having difficulty with the enhancement, there may be an issue. At that point, doing the suppress training appears to free the person from whatever that problem was and you get a rebound. And again, Heather Hargraves did a, a, a PZ suppression from one to 20 Hertz. Right. Uh, following that uh, ended up having the alpha rebound above and beyond what it was at baseline. Heather's a student of this. So, you know, they were investigating, they were co-investigating this phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, and Heather was more interested in the suppression of all waveform right, in, in align with the psychedelic literature. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. That, that takes us too far afield, I think. Right. Well, she's, uh, she's interested specifically in, in the uh, therapeutic use of DMT, psilocybin, ketamine. Uh, she works with Divergence, um, uh, Divergent Group up in Canada. Um, they're working with Entheon, which is a corporation that's focused on hallucinogenic uh, <laughs> substances for therapy and the Royal College of Medicine in London. There's, they've got a big project together at this point. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at some EEGs for them. Uh, they seem to find that the, uh, the uh, not everybody has the same responses and they're kind of trying to figure out, you know, who's a likely candidate for a good therapeutic outcome and who's going to have a ketamine bad experience or, psilocybin bad experience. And uh, so the, my modeling on phenotypes is being used at this point mm -hmm. to try and identify before they experience anything, whether they're likely to have a negative outcome or not. Yeah, quite honestly, if, if somebody has gigantic beta spindles, they're going to have some difficulty with the hallucinogen. If they've got 
epileptiform discharges, but don't have epilepsy. And there's a lot of people in that category. They also have bad outcomes. So we're, we're hoping to be able to get systematic information about those insights. And at that point, be able to kind of guide the psychiatric and psychotherapeutic community that actively looking at MDMA and psilocybin and DMT as, as potential therapeutic agents for PTSD and, and other things as well. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> the, the world has lots of approaches. As you say, there's, there's lots of them in there. Uh, uh, psychotherapeutic folks um, uh, seem to uh, find that the altering of consciousness seems to open some people up to change uh, in, in a way that they weren't prior to the experience. And Again, if we can avoid the negative outcome uh, slice of the people who are uh, uh, taking that route, I think we'll end up improving the uh, the use of those kinds of therapies. So, what do you what do you think uh, about the uh, excess, that usually high levels of theta and and um, and I think delta as well that we'll see in the typical developmentally traumatized person. Well, especially in the right temporal area, right. Uh, that, that, that's what we're seeing, uh, again, in, in very young individuals that have been traumatized or, again, have lacked input. Um, the, it, it appears that the thalamus uh, gates activity, it, it, probably in a self-protective manner, and uh, when you're very young and the thalamus turns off those areas, you end up having uh, slow rhythmicity as opposed to activity. My experience with the age and the frequency uh, is, is based on uh, working with STARTS, the, the group in Australia. I can't remember what their acronym stands for, but the TTS at the end of STARTS um, is Torture and Trauma Survivors. These are international refugees. So they have both adults and children that have come through. Uh, the children usually had uh, slow content uh, as the dominant feature right temporally. And uh, again, the uh, adults ended up having alpha intensities there, but not so much the, uh, the, the slow content. So uh, my running hypothesis was basically the age at the time of the trauma ended up influencing the frequencies that we saw in that right temporal parietal junction. That, that's going to be theoretically anyway, right? In that population it starts, yeah. it's going to be more discrete trauma because they're really war refugees in many cases, right? And so there could theoretically assign an age to the trauma as opposed to my population where they're traumatized over, you know, from birth to by the time of seeing them often, you know, so they're going through a lot of theoretical developmental stages while being traumatized. But I, I just wanted to highlight something you said, because I think it's an incredibly important notion, which is that the experiences that we have as at whatever age we're at, um, is coded in the frequencies that we're making at the time, like the dominant frequencies. Am I understanding you correctly? Mm-hmm. Because I think that's a major challenge to the psych- psychological idea of, of repression, that we don't remember, that we, we choose not to remember things that are too painful to remember. 
And I have often, I wondered about this a long time ago before I even had thoughts about where the frequencies might play a role in memory, uh, in wondering who was the agent, even the unconscious agent of a child to say, I won't remember something because it was too terrible to remember. I think it's much more likely that it's coded in these early waveforms that children are in and that there is some literature and meditation and people get into very deep states of meditation all have spontaneous memories of uh, from childhood as well. And they're usually not great memories. And I've thought about that too. And I thought, well, why would the brain privilege uh, such all the terrible memories and no, none of the good memories and it's never that nobody has any good memories. And I think it's just the survival nature of the, uh, you know, things is you have to remember what will kill you. Yep. And uh, so, um, you know, uh, you could also call the right hemisphere amygdala, the survival amygdala that it has to, and, and according to Shore comes online in utero. Uh, so, um, and is influenced at that point by the mother's amygdala. And I have, you know, I have one case study and it's in the book of a woman who uh, wears training, a, a history of tra trauma throughout her life and uh, was training this child unwanted by the husband, very much, or the partner, very much wanted by her. There's um, was a, a lot of conflict. This baby rolled and punched and elbowed and, and uh, you know, that kind of fetal movement has been shunted off to be considered uh, juvenile bipolar. But in fact, what I think it was, what, so what happened was that I trained this young mother, I trained her at FPO2. And with that, uh, so that's there, with that training brought, found the frequency that was right for her. And during the training, the baby just rolled over and went to sleep. This is, this is so important because what we were looking at was the intergenerational transmission of trauma. I presented this case, in fact, at a meeting where Alan Shore was, and he's the one who started filling in some of the theory about what had happened, you know, and he thought that, that the likelihood was that I had calmed the mother's amygdala by what you would reference, Jay, was his frontal training, uh, and it didn't change, the baby's movement didn't change, I was training her at the temporal lobe, too, uh, training her at T4P4, and it didn't change then but it changed here. It was fascinating because it's, I, I got scared because the fetal movement had changed. I, you know, that's not something you just sit around and go, oh, that's cool. No, but yeah. for three days, this baby was calm. This is what we see after training, right? Initial training. For at three days, the people have the effect that they have. And then it wears off. That has having the baby. So I started training both mother and baby and baby got really calm. The baby was very well organized after birth. I have found just as an interesting uh, aside and it's completely anecdotal um, is that babies uh, born to women who are training uh, don't suck their thumbs. It's interesting because thumb sucking or sucking on pacifiers is non-nutritive sucking, right? It's, it's, a, it's a way of calming your nervous system as a baby. And uh, they don't do that. Why don't they do that? 
was reasonable to, to propose the idea that they actually have gained regulation as their mother gained regulation in utero. And if that could just be picked up by somebody, some university somewhere, take in these mothers and help them with this uh, training, that would be great because it's not likely to be uh, anything as, uh, as likely to be, I mean, it's not going to be uh, juvenile bipolar. Juvenile bipolar is all going to be trauma, right? So most cases. So anyway. That's... Well, it, it's just these kinds of clinical insights that end up uh, allowing researchers to study these things appropriately. You know, everybody goes to a parade to see the elephants and the bands. And after the parade, the grounds crews sweep up and tidy up. And, and the clinicians that are getting the insights are the bands and the elephants. And once in a while, the elephant takes a dump in the road. But the grounds crew is going to clean up and tidy up and figure out exactly you know, what has to be done. But everybody comes to see the clinicians, not the researchers. Mm -hmm. The researchers come after the fact and tidy up the science. But everybody comes to see the elephants and the bands. So uh, congratulations on being a, an elephant or a band, whichever, <laughs> whichever one of those two makes you feel better. You know, so. Right, right. Well, there's less to clean up after the band, I guess, but I like the elephants, so... I'm, I'm right there. There you go. Mm -hmm. uh, Jay, depends who's uh, walking behind uh, who, me or you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's Mental Health Awareness Month. And for the moms and dads, I started with moms and dads and we're getting towards the end of the, end of the show. And I'm going to try to close it out for moms and dads. I, I'm the layman of the group. And then Seaburn and Jay, Dr. Laura and Skip, you can jump on me afterwards. But I'm going to make a couple statements here because i'm trying to market this to to parents to get the word out everybody's got something no brain is the same right depending on the dna you were born with depending on how you were brought up as a child whatever that age range is and the rest of your life if you've taken a knock on the head can determine what your life is going to be like right you have the control to correct or keep the symptoms that you have. Those two or three sentences, is that something fair to say to a mom and dad out there? Or where? How, how can I be better worded? Well, I, I think I, sometimes choice is a question, right? Because our nervous systems determine so much. And I think the gift, the real gift of neurofeedback is to know that you're not caught in those either. Right. Uh, so, but somebody has to, you know, so even if your kid has had a lot of trouble, either physio physiological or emotional or, or historical, all the ways we all, you're right, we all have something. This is why ultimately I'd like to have neurofeedback in the school so that it was just available as a peak performance tool that you, you know, everybody had and the chess player gets to be a better chess player and the kid who's having trouble you know, concentrating gets to concentrate and, you know, they can work directly with their brains. Uh, we're, we're a ways from that yet, but it is wonderful to be able to say to parents and to their kids, you're not crazy. This isn't about being crazy. 
This is about whatever the this is, is about either making your brain work better or ironing out some glitch in your brain. And you can do it. And you can do it in this non-invasive way, playing a video game with your brain. Perhaps it will be the case. Most people don't need this. But Stephen Curry, who's a, you know, one of the best basketball players of all time, uses neurofeedback. At least that's the story I hear. And, and if he can use neurofeedback, I probably all of us can use neurofeedback. Right. So uh, I want to make it available. And if I would feel less, I would feel uh, easier about a conversation uh, about neurofeedback if it were more available to people, both financially available, geographically available. Um, I don't ever think we're going to have an agreement on how this works or how this works best. And I don't think we need one. I think you find the people that you find um, and if they're trauma-informed, if they have an awareness of the, uh, and a certain proficiency in neurofeedback, whatever approach they're using, as long as they, it, it works and they don't blame the patient if it doesn't, this is the big problem I have is people saying, you know, they'll use a, let's just say a cue-based approach and that, that the brain doesn't respond to it. They'll say, well, some brains just can't train. And that is not a conclusion you can draw. Early, anyway, there are some brains that can't train, but not very many. So, so that's my reluctance. And but here we are. We're talking. We're on the neuro noodle um, network. So we're talking about uh, neuroscience, and uh, and it's also. I, I know it's also going to be a difficulty, uh, Pete, for parents to get worried about how they're parenting their children, and you know, just. D- do your best, right? You, no one, can, no one is, does this perfectly by a long shot, and 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 always with a focus on helping your child regulate what they feel. That's the most important gift you can give your child is helping them regulate these powerful emotions, uh, and uh, find your way to that. We're, we're all dealt a hand in our genetics, but our genetics determine us. You know, not you may have the gene for breast cancer, and it may never express itself. So you may ever, never, ever have breast cancer. Now, obviously, you have a tendency towards that, a propensity towards it. But epigenetics and and uh, the environment end up having a great deal to say about what our genetics end up manifesting. So, uh, uh, although we are dealt a hand with our genetics, and some of them are. Some of us are dealt a pair of twos, you know, and some of us get a royal flush. But, you know, you can win a a game of poker with a pair of twos. You just have to bluff real well, you know. So there's ways to play whatever hand you're dealt. And everybody could use a tune-up. It's not to say that you're broken to say that you need a tune-up. Go to Indianapolis 500. Those cars have... $150,000, $200,000 engines that are really high performance, but they tune those suckers two, three times a day. You know, they've got computer programs to change little itty bitty bits about them. If you're going to optimize your performance and be a high performer, you need to tune the system. And neuromodulation and neurofeedback are wonderful ways to go and, and make small tweaks that are volitional. They're not being done to you. They're being done by you. And medication does it to you. Neurofeedback, neuromodulation does it by you. And I think that's a superior approach. Uh, you're not the victim. Uh, you're, the, you're, you're the master at that point. 
Wow. Dr. Laura, Dr. Skip? That same line, just not as uh, articulate elo eloquent. Um, Laura and I's mentor, uh, Len Cozio, told us probably day one, hey, the vast majority of behaviors are beyond conscious control or awareness. And with that said, it, it just becomes so much more than knowing things and how to behave. It's about getting after these habits, if you will, that our, that our brain is really good at to do some tuning and neurofeedback seems to be such a clean and efficient manner in which to get after those things. And so there's my, my plug, but it doesn't need a plug. It just needs maybe the message out there that, Hey, here's a way to get after what happens all the time anyway, in our lives. It's, it's what's behind it. And with Jay's kind of analogy there with the, the race car, it's, it's the, the, everything it's the motor, it's the engine, it's the transmission uh, axles, tires, right? It's not just the steering wheel. And so it's a way to get after all those things. It's a really efficient way. So there we go, Laura. All the above, of course, you know, I want to be hopeful and I'm also still frustrated, uh, frustrated for the same things that Seaburn talked about. You know, there, there's this, you know, these, these uh, great experiences with the clinicians, um, great research sitting in an obscure journal somewhere and, uh, you know, hopeful on one side, wow, you know, this, you know, can do a lot, but then frustrated that it's, you know, again, not out there more. And, you know, that's a big question. And that's why we're here. That's why we're, you know, doing the NeuroNoodle podcast is to make it more uh, household um, friendly and um, less threatening for, you know, whatever that means. And yeah, we, we continue pushing forward to, uh, you know, get it out there to the masses. We just, we just got to keep grinding away, Seaburn. Who who do you think we should have on next to uh, keep to pass the baton to? I mean, there's only one Dr. Fisher, but uh, and one Jay. Well, I think I think you know talking about uh, you know Jay has really uh, come up through um, completely uh, you know with uh, neurofeedback, and I've come up through the clinical route. And I want to get this word out as well to clinicians or, um, and the two most uh, influential people presently doing this that I know of are Bessel, Vandercoek, who you could invite, and, and uh, Ruth Lanius. And she might even show you some of this research. She, she's a very, they're both excellent guests and presenters. So, okay. um, and I can give you their contact info. And I'll sell, send them this clip and say, Seabird and Jay said, you got to come on the show. So there's that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Seabird, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. I loved it. Thank you. Oh, I'm going to put a, a tickler every 90 days. We got to get a Seabird fix. What do you say? Well, I like this. I, I love doing this anyway, but I, it's been a particular pleasure to do it with Jay. So. Oh. Nice dynamic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. Thank you. Thank you, Seabird. It's been a pleasure. We, we, we got to extend Jay's contract. Yeah. We thank you. <laughs> I'm sure he's making tons. Okay. All right. Goodbye, everyone. All thank right. You. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, Seaburn. We thank you all for listening to NeuroNoodles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcast. Dr. Laura can be found at Jansons.com. Dr. Skip can be found at DrSkipRin.com. Jay Gunkelman, again, while well, there's only one on Google, you'll find him. Idea for a topic, please email me, Pete, at neuronoodle.com. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Cue the non-copyrighted music.